Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. So I think one of the ways to just declutter all that stuff is to ask a better question. How can this be easy? How can this be effortless? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Richard Thaler, if you want to encourage some activity, make it easy. Our guest today, Greg McEwen, is on a quest to make our lives easier. He's the founder and CEO of McEwen Inc., an organization that helps leading companies like Apple, Google, and Pixar reach the next level of growth. He's also the author of the New York Times bestseller, Essentialism, a world-renowned keynote speaker, host of the What's Essential uh, with Greg McEwen podcast, which you should definitely subscribe to. And finally, and most recently, he's the author of a brand new book, which should be out when you hear this, called Effortless. Um, which you should be able to purchase today. So, Greg, uh, it's, welcome back. Uh, it's good to have you again. It's great to be with you again. Thank you. So, I know last time we we kind of started at the beginning, so we won't go all the way back. But for listeners who may have uh, missed that previous conversation, um, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your first book, Essentialism. Really, kind of took off. What was what were the sort of core principles from Essentialism, and why do you think it it resonated so deeply? Essentialism, in one word, is prioritization. And it was just taking responsibility for that. It's based on a single idea, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And so what you need to do is really get clear about what is essential and then eliminate the non-essentials as much as you possibly can. That's essentialism. And I think it resonated because so many people uh, feel busy but not productive, stretch too thin at work or at home. And just live in a sense that their day is endlessly hijacked by other people's agenda for them. And so it just seems to have uh, hit a nerve. And in one sense, I'm, of course, grateful for that. In another sense, it's a shame that this is such a norm, uh, that there seems to be a, a tendency to fall into the undisciplined pursuit of more. And this uh, essentialism ad- is advocating an alternative path, a way out of that sometimes mad, mad world uh, by pursuing the disciplined pursuit of less. That's essentialism. Right. If you could say it in like, you know, one sentence, then it, then it would even be there. So what, <laughs> so, so what's changed, you know, since you wrote the book, is there, is distraction more technology? Like, are we being pulled? Is it really, is a failure really to understand what's most important or, or are there just too many public things pulling us in too many different directions or is it, is it both? Well, I think there's been a fundamental change in the human condition. Um, And that's uh, Peter Drucker's word for it. You know, he said it for the first time in human history, there's this exponential increase of choices. uh, And he concludes society is totally unprepared for it. Uh, So the change is is still perpetual. I was just talking to my wife yesterday and she's like really tech savvy, you know, wicked smart. And she's just like, yeah, you just can't keep up with the with all the tech changes. You just like every app you're using is different than the last time you used it. Every service is changing constantly in the name of improvement. Sometimes they achieve that, sometimes not. And so you never can feel on top of your life, on top of everything, because the changes is perpetual. So, so yeah, I think there's a, you know, I think the news is still the internet. Uh, It's still technology and there's a tremendous opportunity in that. But if you're not careful, you're going to get consumed and controlled. I generally view that technology makes a a good servant, but a poor master. And sometimes it's hard to get that balance right. It's interesting you said that. I was thinking about back when I used to buy like cameras or DSLRs, 
I would buy Nikon because I understood the operating system and like buying a Canon meant relearning, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not just pushing the button, it's the menus and everything. I feel right. like it's kind of the same way with cars now too. Like you got to know <laughs> the operating system of the car rather than you just get in and there's a park and a drive and a, uh, so, you know, it's just all this stuff that was supposed to make life easier isn't in a lot of these cases. Yeah. I think that the risk is that there's this uh, massive increase in complexity yeah. That is one of the, the significant changes is that there's increased complexity everywhere you look. And technology is partially enabling that because, I mean, I see technology as incredibly useful, uh, an accelerator, something that can automate improvement and change if you use it right. However, all the things that make it a potential for good also can automate things that are poorly designed. If you poorly design a website, then you have automated difficulty and complexity for everyone who follows you. Everyone who's ever called up a call center and gone through a digital line that asks you to give them all this information only to speak to a live person eventually and then ask for all that same information <laughs> has experienced the same problem. It's like you've automated complexity. I, I don't know if there's a market study on this, but I, this happened to my wife last night. Like it, it drives my whatever blood pressure to the max. <laughs> when you call in, they say, Greg, can I get your phone number in case we get disconnected? They take your phone number, then they transfer you to a line that wasn't worth disconnected and no one calls you back after you went right. through this whole thing. You're like, I, I, or I'm like, wait, you're the credit card company. You have my phone number. You're the bank. Like you just disconnected <laughs> me. Like, <laughs> why aren't you calling me back? Why aren't you calling me back when I've had to wait for 45 minutes to get through the line? Right. And now we got disconnected. It wasn't my fault. And you aren't calling me back. This right. is the worst. After you asked me to repeat all of the numbers that I punched into the phone and that you also have in your CRM system because I identified myself. So exactly. <laughs> so this is an example of how like complexity gets ahead of us, yeah. gets away from us. And, and some of those things are just completely out of our control and you know, adds to one of my primary premises for this new book for Effortless, which is that life is hard. Yeah. And the additional problem is that we often make it harder than it needs to be yeah. by complicating a variety of things uh, that we don't have to, but we, we sometimes do. And the impact of that is that we can burn out and still not achieve the results that we right. want to achieve. So my position in this book is that we can make a different choice, that we can learn a new mindset and some new, you know, new tool set to help us find an easier path to do what matters most. And if we can find that, not always, but when right. we can, it helps us to be able to achieve the results we want without burning out. And again, a little unfortunately, it seems to be hitting now at a time of like maximum relevance because right. I feel like right now in the world, as we're still in the pandemic, but starting to transition out of it. And it's like there are only two kinds of people in the world right now. There are people who are burned out. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's people who know they are burned out. <laughs> That's fair. And it, it's like, which category do you want to be in? Because yeah. I think there's a lot of people who are still grinding through. No, I think I'm okay. I'm, you know, I'm doing all right. I'll, I'm getting the results I want. I'm, I talk to people. Oh yeah, I'm writing, uh, you know, authors in my world. I've, I've written a book and I'm writing the next book and I'm doing this book. It is like, yep, I know that drill. Yeah. That's also going to leave you being burned out. You know, that's probably where you are right now, even though because you're not traveling, you can be productive in a different way. So anyway, I think that's, that's sort of the nexus. If essentialism is prioritization, effortless is simplification. And I think it's what we need right now. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. (coughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. So you, you let's talk about the new book. You start off the book on a pretty vulnerable note, sharing about your own life and how, despite modeling this essentialism principle and cutting out the things, you felt exhausted. So how yeah. did you address this issue? And did that is that what led to the book, or or did you? Which was the chicken and which was the egg? Yeah, I mean, it, the story you're alluding to is that um, is that I was being more selective than I'd ever been. Right? I had, we talked about this just before we came on air that the seven years between essentialism and effortless being published, which is the longest time, you know, like I hardly ever hear of an author that takes that long between books. And you wrote a book on essentialism, which was wildly successful, which I'm sure meant that everyone was asking for your time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did. I mean, I've got the best agent ever and he probably emails or texts me once a month in for all those years. Hey, you ready? You know, let's go. And I, have emotionally been ready to do it, but I've just felt like no hold off and wait and be an essentialist about it. You know, yeah. be, be sure before you go forward, be selective. I, I wasn't building the workshop business that sort of called for that maybe you would normally do next. I was being, I was, I'd put on hiatus the class that I was teaching at Stanford. I love doing that class. That, 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 these were all examples of selectivity just in the professional realm. But even with all of that, I started feeling like, yeah, but, but I, there's still too much. And I want to do it. So it's not even a motivational problem. Yeah. And I have a high work ethic. So it's not like I'm just not engaged. I, I love what I'm doing, a sense of mission. So those things, those things were already at the point that they, as far as they can go and still be in health. So if you still want to make a higher contribution, but you've sort of run out of space, what do you do? And in the midst of... When I, in fact, I was working with some entrepreneurs and they use that, you know, that age old thing of the, the big rock theory. We've all heard it, right? Yeah. The big rock theory is if you take a container and you put in the small rocks first, the trivial things, and then the big rocks, then you will run out of space, right? Yeah. Geometrically. And the way it's supposed to work is if you put the big rocks in first and then the small rocks, then it all works, you know, then it fits. But I found myself feeling like, yeah, but what if there are too many big rocks? What if the responsibilities are still there? They are essential. By this point, I had four children, right? Beyond being father of essentialism, I'm like actually the father of children. (laughs) And I want to be there for them. And I am engaging with them and be trying to coach them and be there for them. It's like already starts to still feel too much. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially in, a, in the, this pandemic that like, yeah, which things am I supposed to put down when I'm asked to do home education uh, and work from home and everything's integrated? I, I think there's some people who are exhausted from the pandemic, but they feel a deep sense of responsibility for other people, right? And so that's this, that's just piling up, <laughs> exactly. cascading, yeah. So you have this situation, there's a graphic in the book that to illustrate the point, it's just like there's, there's too many big rocks. And in the middle of that, already sensation, I end up with a a really big emergency sort of family crisis on top of that. And I'm just like, yeah, you've got to find essentialism is necessary, but maybe it's insufficient. Maybe there's something more, or maybe there's something you need to go deeper on in your understanding. 
And so just to even cope, survive, or to thrive through these increasing responsibilities, I was set off on a, a sort of new quest, first to help myself and my own family, but then this evolved and grew into, I think there's something here really important. I think I'm not the only person who struggles with this. You know, highly engaged people who still teeter on the edge of burnout. And that was before the pandemic. And so now I find it, it has this power of relevancy that, that I couldn't have anticipated. But I, I just think people everywhere uh, know, know what I'm talking about here. And so you know, I, didn't, I didn't write the book because I think life should just be easy or because I find my life so easy. I wrote it because, I mean, it's, it's George Eliot's sensation, right? Which is what do we live for if yeah. not to make life less difficult for each other? That was the why behind it. And I, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that it will hit a nerve. And hopefully I've not been rubbish in writing the book so that, it, you know, that, that it can be useful to people. Well, well, you said we were talking before that, that it has not been so effortless <laughs> to write yeah. the book and get it ready. Um, I mean, when that happens, like, do you feel like, <laughs> what's the cycle that goes through your head? Like, I feel I, hypocritical. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel this, I feel that I made it harder than it needed to be. That's what I feel when I look back at it. Because what what I was sharing with you off air and and I think is so worth sharing is that I just spent too much of my time worried or even fearful while I was writing. Like fear isn't productive. Uh, Having a, a healthy sense of responsibility, not taking things for granted. You know, I'd rather be on that side of the line than the other right. way. You're like, ah, I've got this, you know, I'm sure. I mean, some people within the publishing world really do seem to talk this way where they'll go, well, if everyone, they, you know, they love this book. They're going to, whatever you do, they're going to love it. And it's like, and that's not what I observe. I observe a they're lot. They're going to buy it, but they might not love it. Right. Well, that's the, the, yes. <laughs> and, and even if you have a few people that do, that isn't the same as if they don't love it, you're dead anyway, because the only way a book has a life is right. if people breathe life into it and go, this is relevant for me and for you and you and you and you. It's the word of mouth is really the only right. marketing that, that exists. So to, is the fear though, like in that case, is the fear like really external is it internal? Is it, is it the fear? Right. The fear is not that people won't like the book. It's that you didn't write a good, as good of a book as you did before or as good oh. as you can or yeah. Well, the, the fear, the, unhelpful fear. Yeah. It took me a long time. Like it took me till probably a couple of weeks ago to even use the word fear for what I was feeling. I would say, yeah, I'm worried. I'm too worried about this, you know, but actually when I look back at it at the worst moments, I'm like, no, it, that's just fear. You know, like put that word on it. That's what it is. And so there's a healthy level. There's a healthy level of effort. Right. There's a healthy level of even a healthy anxiety, you might even say it, where you are, are being really engaged, like you care, you, you want to do the best you can do. But then there's also a point of diminishing returns in right. effort, in taking responsibility, and then even a point beyond that of negative returns. Right. You go way past the 80-20 rule. <laughs> yeah. And, and, so, and so I think that the book has come forth not because of that, but in spite of that. Like the actual writing itself, the day in and day out of it, I had the world's best editor, Talia, Talia Crone, and then I had a great researcher helping me, Jonathan Cullen. Working with them was effortless. That was one of the most enjoyable experiences of my like professional life, working with them. Seriously. It felt the actual experience of flow. writing yeah. with them was, yes, and it was in team flow, which I haven't always experienced, you know. But we would go into this Google Doc. We would like text each other, okay, you're going in, I'm going in. And we would go in. And so our meetings most of the time weren't spoken meetings. We would just be in the document working on it. And it felt a bit like Harry Potter. I don't know. Are you, are you Harry Potter? I, I'm not, but I, I'm very aware of it. But I'm not. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> well, I've read them all to my children and, uh, and they've read them all multiple times since. But, but like just this idea of like, it was like people were in there writing and editing and adding stories and, and I just loved that experience. So the, I don't want to portray like the whole thing was yeah. agony. It wasn't. It's just an example of how I made it harder than it needed to be. The work was actually going forward and going forward quite smoothly and quite well. But I added on to that this unhelpful anxiety, this state. 
And I've come to think about state as maybe being the most important thing of our lives <laughs> is yeah. what state we're in. And I think broadly speaking, not to oversimplify it, there are only two states. There is a state of suffering and there is a, what I'm calling the effortless state. And the state of suffering is what, what I'm doing when I'm getting into this over-anxiety, this fear, right. this worry. The state of an effortless state is whenever I'm being grateful and being even just that while I'm well-rested and you just are like at ease and you're not forcing things. So, so what, are the, what are the core tenets of making something effortless? Well, I mean, the model, um, the relationship I think is really important to understand is that state affects action, which affects results. So that's the flow. So think of three concentric circles. You like, you like your concentric circle models. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, why, what, concentric, what concentric model are you thinking about? Well, wasn't that your model in the first book? Right? No, wasn't it wasn't. Oh, now you went and done it. No, there's no concentric models in that. Although maybe you and I talked about one when we talked last time. I thought it was the uh, the inner circle, the demands no. on you, the middle. It was no. okay. That no. was different. It was probably something I came up with on the way to effortless, to be honest. Got it. But the, ne nevertheless, I'm going to go yeah, back and check the tape on that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's on me. It's on me. I will have been unclear about that. So so the core is state. What state are you in? And if you're in a state of suffering, that's just internal complexity. You're just full of all these like unhelpful emotions. You're holding yeah. grudges. You're fearful. You're holding on to ideas and assumptions that are outdated. Uh, you're just cluttered. And that's why I see simplification as being the cure to it. If you can get rid of that stuff, if you can, the natural state within us is to be at ease. We actually have an effortless state just always available to us, but it's all just covered and cluttered. As you remove that complexity, you can move into effortless action. And this is, this is like the practical stuff people are waiting for. Uh, but this is where you say, like, like, what's the simplest way to get the job done? Uh, where, you, you know, you could ask questions like, what does done look like? And just get clear about that. That just removes so much unnecessary complexity and difficulty. Or what does what done good look like, right? Or done well, like, right? right. I mean, because done perfect is where we get oh, really... Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> For sure not perfect. Yes. Yeah. What does done look like? What's, what is... You, you can have a range on it, but what's the minimum viable done? Yeah. <laughs> MVD. I like right? That. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, what's the... And then what's the minimum viable action? MBA, right? Like, what's the first specific tiniest thing you can do to begin towards getting that thing done. And so that's just like the first actual physical tangible thing you can do because everything begins with some action with your hands, with your body right now. And often we're thinking about step 100 and beyond. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So you're saying that it really doesn't have to do with the task at hand. It, all, it actually has to do with just resetting yourself first and, and then getting into the actions? Yeah, I think that first is the first area is to declutter yeah. your mind, your heart, all of that. Yes, because I think a lot of the time, the things that keep us from starting or finishing the important work of our lives is not the task itself. Yeah. It's well, here's a tiny example, but I have this printer that was on the floor of my office for two weeks. I'm looking around 
uh, my office one day. I, go, oh, I want to tidy it up and I see this and I'm like, oh, second I see it. Well, do I give it away? Do I throw it away? Do I sell it? Each of those has options. Yeah. I throw it away. I have to go to a digital recycling center. Where's that? They just pop up from time to time. That was all happened in five seconds and I already gave it up on it. Yeah. Like, oh, that's overwhelming. Okay, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Is the task hard or is it all that stuff in my head that makes it hard? Right. And I think it's all the stuff. So what I did in that situation was ask one question, which I think is a pretty quick shorthand for getting into the effortless mindset is just, I say, okay, what? How, okay, stop. You're writing a book on effortless. Like, how could it be effortless? And I look up, you know, literally like I'm thinking about that look up and I see that there's some workers outside down the ways a bit. I thought, well, maybe someone wants it over there. So I stand up, walk outside, walk down to the Mahalis. I got this printer, it's in working order, but replaced it. Anybody want it? Oh yeah, I'll have it. I walk back inside, pick the thing up, give it to them. Within two minutes of asking the question, I didn't just have the answer. It was actually executed. And in that tiny little story, I mean, I, that, that's, it's that multiplied by 10 times, 100 times. Like every day of my life now, I'm just keep asking the question. And it's amazing because, you know, as we know, questions are answers. And we're not asking that question, or at least I haven't been. And I think a lot of us don't, aren't even aware of the questions we're asking. So we're just proceeding with a complex way of doing something when, when actually there's a really easy solution we just aren't considering. So I think one of the ways to just declutter all that stuff is to ask a better question. How can this be easy? How can this be effortless? And that's, that's one illustration, but I could give you a dozen more right now from me and from other people where you're just taking the complex hard path for whatever reason, and, uh, and we could ask a different question, get some better answers. But, now, one of the things that you may be fighting with this concept is some very, you know, quotes or phrases that have been around for a while, like nothing worthwhile is easy. <laughs> so, you know, that normalizes the idea that meaningful achievements or essentials kind of have to be difficult. Like, how do you respond to that sort of yeah. phrase? Yeah. Just think about, <laughs> think about the lunacy of that phrase. <laughs> I mean, I'm being serious about this. Like, why? Why do those have to be true? Why does the most important stuff have to be the hardest stuff? Well, I think, right, right. I, people say that because maybe the kids and stuff because they don't want them to learn that. And I, I, look, I, we could argue this both sides, but they don't want them to learn that like studying for five minutes gets a great outcome on, you know, your test. So, so there's some cases where, right, you need to focus on the outcome, but there's some cases where kind of garbage in equals garbage out. So how do you, how do you discern these things? Look, I, I recognize that I'm taking on a bit of a sacred cow here. Yeah. And I, know, I can feel that. I know that. I think I've done a pretty reasonable amount of work with people who are trying to figure out what's essential in their life and do it. Yeah. Right. Like I, I've been on a listening tour, an unparalleled listening tour for my life for years and years talking to people about this. And one of the things that I have noticed is that people do believe that the more important the thing is, the harder it's going to be. That's just an assumption. They hold it. Sometimes that's true. Right. Loads of times it's not. It doesn't have to be. Now, I'm in favor of teaching my own children, work hard, you can do hard things. Of course, I believe that. Yeah. I think that's a perfectly good moral thing. Yeah. But there is a toxicity that has entered our culture that emphasizes that all the time. That says like, it's almost like a Puritan idea that says, look, hard work is the only virtuous path. Harder yeah. and harder and harder and harder, and not just in rhythms of times of pushing and then times of relaxing, but it's like 24-7. The Puritanism combined with the Industrial Revolution thinking is like you've got to be a machine, like a factory, and that the only way to success is to hustle 24-7, never stop, right. never do anything else, and also to distrust the easy. Another Puritan idea, which is, which is that if something is easier, it can't be the right path. It can't be. You have to go through a hard path if you want to take the right path. It has to be. Yeah. And I think there's just a third alternative, that there is a moral, virtuous, but easier or lighter path in life. And it's not just a good idea to discover it. It's like necessary to get through the hardest, most challenging things that are to come. Like, yes, life is going to be full of difficult things. Well, also, as you say this, it occurs to me that like, 
it'd be great to go, you know, to go on a two mile walk and figure out you don't like the destination versus to go on a hundred mile walk and figure out you don't like the destination, right? Sometimes we're making an assumption that what we want is what we want. And if we take the super hard everything path and we get there, that's where cognitive distance and all this stuff comes into play. But, oh, maybe we should have <laughs> sampled this a little earlier. Well, I mean, you, there's something that you just said that at least makes me think of effortless action. So we spent a while on effortless state. Yeah. But now effortless action doesn't mean being lazy. Yeah. The fact we think we have to choose between hard and important and lazy and trivial shows how dominant the mindset is. Right. Why can't we choose essential and easier? Well, well you have a great, so you have a great <laughs> example in the book from one of my business idols, Herb Kelleher. So I love, yeah. love, love Southwest. So the, the rest of the airline industry was gravitating towards these super fancy ticket systems and Southwest went the other way. Talk a little bit about that as an example, exactly of what you were just talking about. They're a low cost carrier. They're trying to, take over the airline industry with a completely different strategy. They know who they are. They know who they aren't. But they find having an executive meeting, they're trying to decide what to do about these ticket systems. The whole rest of the airline industry, everybody has these expensive um, system where you get your tickets from. For The cost for uh, Southwest just to implement that in the phase one would be $2 million, uh, which at the time is a lot of money. And, but they what think year is this? I, That's a good question, actually. 90s? For sure. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're just trying to, maybe even earlier, and they're trying to work out how do we handle it? And because if we don't do it, they could even maybe go out of business because this is such an accepted norm or whatever. And so somebody finally says in the meeting, they go, well, yeah, but do we care about what Continental thinks about what a ticket is? Like, do we have to be burdened by what their assumptions are right. about how to do this and and what the outcome needs to be. And they're like, no, we don't care. We're trying to do it completely different. So they said, well, what's an easier way to do this? What, what would this look like if it was effortless? And they're like, well, what if we just had on our receipt that people already receive and the machines we already have installed and we just printed on it, this is your ticket. And that's exactly what they did. So they saved themselves the $2 million plus all the maintenance, plus all the time and effort involved, You know, the true total cost of ownership completely solved by simply printing, this is your ticket on what they were already doing. Right. And the key point in that example is it did not have any impact on the customer. The customer was not better or worse off. Yeah. It, it's, and this is where we ought to be looking for, for complexity and hidden complexity and stuff that just makes stuff harder than it needs right. to be. There are better, easier paths. The, the thing you'd said earlier that is on my mind is um, it was about what did you say just just before you asked me about Southwest? What were we talking about before that? I have to replay the tape. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? We were talking about, I think, the misperception of hard versus like worth doing and difficult. Yeah, oh, and, you, yeah. I know what you said. Okay. You said it would be good if we didn't have to go 100 miles down a journey oh, yeah. in order to learn whether that was the thing we really want to do. Yeah. Like how costly does it have to be before we can learn and go forward? And it just reminded me of one of my favorite case studies in this book was about the about Henry Kramer, who started the Kramer yeah. Prize. Uh, and his goal was to have human-powered flight, which he thought wouldn't be that. He thought that it was an achievable goal, but he knew he needed to kind of help get people going with it. So it's a 50,000-pound prize in 1959, so pretty substantial. Uh, this is a, only 10 years before people are walking on the moon. Yeah. It's 50 years after... Wright brothers had, had flown for the first sustainable time in, in uh, Kitty, whatever it was called. So he thinks, yeah, this is going to be doable. 17 years later, no one's done it, despite masses of money, masses of effort, and these big, elegant, beautiful machines that have been built with wooden slats and plastic coverings and casings. And, and then enter Paul McCready who discovers when he's looking at the problem, not a big aeronautical breakthrough, but he's like, everyone's trying to solve the wrong problem. Hmm. And the problem they're trying to solve is, is okay, you're going to fly this plane by you know half a mile around these two pylons. And like that's the target, and they're trying to build the most beautiful alien machine to do it. He said they, that's exactly wrong. What you need is a plane that you can crash and fix and fly again for cheap. Hmm. You want cheap, 
learning. You want failure to be as cheap as possible. In order to be able to make progress, you mean to make the, the learning as easy as you can. And that breakthrough was the key because that meant that they could crash. He, he, like literally, he didn't have money for a team. His, his, his <laughs> friends and family, his own, he had his young son was his test pilot. Uh, and they'd go in there, they'd fly this thing. This thing looked ugly, looked amateurish compared to the competitors. But the advantage was they could crash this thing, put on a broom handle, tape it again, try again. And so they would have more crashes per day than some of their competitors had in the lifetime of their machines. And so it was on his 223rd attempt that he is successful, wins that prize, and two years later wins the second prize, which was crossing the English Channel by human-powered flight. It wasn't aeronautical insight. It wasn't perfection. It wasn't building the most beautiful, elegant machine. It was making it easier to learn. Right. You know, it's like the courage to be rubbish. Just do the next little thing rather than the obsession to be perfect. That was the key to actually making incredible speed, you know, fast progress in what really mattered to him. So I was thinking actually during the break about something I just heard to what you were saying. You may want to chase this down as a new case study. But when they were talking about this infrastructure bill in the U.S. that everyone's trying to come out with, one of the challenges to infrastructure and the cost is that they're designing it for these 100-year storms and stuff, which seem to be coming every five years or trying to predict what 100-year. And this engineer or whatever said, look, why don't we just design this stuff to not <laughs> to be for 10 years or modular? Or we don't know how bad this stuff's going to be. I, I think it's a huge mistake to design this stuff for, for 100 years. Uh, it's driving up the cost and complexity through the roof, and we, we should focus on shorter periods of time. I mean, that sounds like a very similar example. Yeah, I, I haven't studied that question. It's, a, it's an interesting question, and I certainly think that if you're not careful in government, in any complex system, but in government systems, is that everybody adds something. And so as it goes through all different committee right. meetings and all different agendas, you can end up with something very incredibly complex and expensive on the other end. You know, we, we, we've all heard the anecdote. I don't know that it's true, to be honest, but the anecdote of, of the, you know, somebody wanted to have a pen that could write on the moon, you know, for the uh, astronauts. And so the NASA went through this really complex process of finding a pen that could do that. And they did, and it costed this enormous amount. <laughs> and in the end, they said, well, yeah, but what did they used to do? And someone's like, well, they just used a pencil. And like, as I say, I don't know that that actually is true, but I yeah. think it still illustrates a point, which is like that there are simpler solutions, but we have a bias for complexity and for hard. And, it's, and if you want to do something important, you believe it has to be that way. And we just make it way more burdensome. Right. What if there is an easier path? Or a different way of doing it. I think that's the key thing I heard, like kind of question your assumption of what you're actually trying to solve in the first place. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, what does them look like? What's the easiest first step to get us going? But I could even, I can even sort of simplify all of this conversation just to saying like right now, if somebody's burned out, what can they do? Yeah. And there's a few things that they can do, I think, that just start to just to make life more sustainable right now. And one of the things that I, I like to talk about in the book is, is just having like a done for the day list. Yeah. You just go instead of an endless, literally endless to-do list, which I think is fine to have, right. but that you're not trying to do that endless list today. Or, or that you're like, oh, that's a quick one. That's a quick one, but not an important one. I mean, that's what most people, they go with the urgent, not important version. And I, just, Yeah. Yes, I think so. And so that's part of what, if you make the list, and I don't do it every day, but when I make the list, and Anna, my wife, will do it as well, it forces you just to think ahead of time, what really would leave me satisfied? Right. And so done for the day list is, is just a, a way of reducing it. I think it sort of can't be more than like 10 items on the list generally. Of course, it depends on what size of your items that they are. Uh, but I think it, it's not like a massive list and we're just cramming everything. And then I think a second thing which is related to this is just like a set time to be done. You know, in right. COVID times, do people have, I won't put you on the spot, but do people have a set time to be done? If you don't, if five o'clock comes six, seven, eight, nine, ten, like there's no, it just goes on. Well, I, I, we've done the same thing with a project too, with people where they say like, look, this just took way more time than I needed. And you just can't get on the scope. And so the answer is, 
I want this project to take two hours. <laughs> so whatever it takes to get it done in two hours, that that's how much time it's worth to me to mm-hmm. you spend it on. It. And then you put some parameters around it, right? Which is a I different really like way. that. Yeah, I really like that. That that's a great way of of signaling to somebody uh, a parameter, yeah. a boundary. Otherwise, someone can can in well intended purposes can spend ten hours, twenty hours on something. It's like, and then they understand. I'm not looking for a twenty page dissertation. I'm looking right. for yeah, <laughs> exactly. I, I really like that. It's a great little tactic. I'm gonna, I'm definitely gonna start using that. It's like this is a this is like a no more than thirty minute task. Just go. What you can do in thirty minutes, send me. Right, because I felt that. When you do the reverse and afterwards, it's insulting. Like, Greg, this should have taken an hour when you took four <laughs> is insulting. But saying like, Greg, I don't want you to spend more than an hour on this because it's not worth it to me. You know, that, that's the level of effort that's, that's needed. That just positions it a little bit differently. I, I think setting these kinds of expectations, I just have a, a team that I'm working with. Well, actually, just in the middle of considering working with. And uh, it came highly recommended to me. And... We were chatting on a Friday and they said, oh, I'll, you know, I'll send you something Monday. And I said, yeah, just send me like, it's okay. Like, yeah. Send me an ugly thing. And literally we, it, it, the email came through, the ugly thing. And that's what we call it now. And it's like, that's fine. Right. I don't need a fully polished thing. That's the, the difference between an ugly proposal for this circumstance right. and an elegant, excellent proposal, that is not worth anything to me. There's yeah. no additional value. I want to see quickly, what are you basically proposing? What would the fee basically be? Okay, that will help us have the next conversation. I have a similar principle. So I've always said with any service provider, I hate the big reveal because it, it scares <laughs> me, right? We're going to go away for 90 days. We're going to do this. for. I'm like, no, no, do a little bit of it. And then let's talk about where we are to make sure we're even on the same page, right? I always feel like the big reveal sets up for you being like on the wrong places right the big reveal is like <laughs> such a flinch worthy yeah. moment and the longer someone thinks the more of course they're going to add and then they're yeah. going to look at that and feel very justified that like well if i do all of this this is the right yeah. point for that and then probably not wrong but it's like i i'm not looking for everything i'm not looking for all the bells and whistles right. which is the thing that's valuable let's do that well, well question i really wanted to ask you i know you didn't get too in depth in the book but let like the people element some people are just exhausting. So as you think about, (laughs) right, they make little things hard. They take your energy. So, and you're talking about state of mind, like how much of this is having to take a human stock of who in your world is effortless versus lots of effort? Yeah. I mean, that is a great question. And the thing that I, the way I want to answer that is like, first, first ask how easy you are to work with. (laughs) Right. I don't mean you, you. I yeah. mean me, Survey. you, and all of yeah. us. Right. Yeah. Like, how am I easy to work with or am I hard to work with? I right. can point to times when I have been awfully hard to work with. Yeah. And I can point to times when I'm like, no, I have been really easy to work with. And just learning what I was doing differently. And sometimes, okay, you've got to push back on stuff. You've got to, something to fight for. And that can be a little difficult, but you don't have to be that guy all the time. Right. Like, right. you know, so. I think first self-evaluation on that same question. I do think it is a really reasonable question to ask about the people that we that we work with and, and live with, especially if you're an entrepreneur where you actually have some some agency around this. Uh, sometimes it's a little harder if you're in a in a structure on a team and you can't choose who's on it. But just really working out, yeah, like are these people exhausting to be around. One of the best tests. Well, of you this, just talked about like that writing team and editing team, like being in flow, being in sync, right, with them. Versus, I yes. say, hey, Greg, I need you to go do this task with with Emma, and you're like, oh, like you're already to the mental thing before you're already like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got this is I'm already in a bad state on this, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, and and well, I remember. It, a test on this is like how you feel when that person's on your calendar, yeah. right? Like when you think about that meeting and you're like, oh, you right. know, that's, that's just going to be like pulling teeth. So what should you do? Do you switch the person? Do you like, if that's already adding to your degree of difficulty? Okay. I think that there's, I think there's two things. I'm going to talk about like the thing that has been helpful to me as an entrepreneur is something that Warren Buffett said which is, is that when you're hiring people, and that can include like hiring people, even if it's per project or like, you know, just yeah. you're hiring somebody for something, you want the three eyes. 
He said integrity, intelligence, and initiative. Yeah. And he said, and it, if you don't have integrity, then it'll, the other two will damage you. But actually, basically, I think that's true for all three of them now. It's like if any one of them is low, it'll damage the others, right? If somebody right. Is, is low initiative, then that could still damage the others as well. So, yeah. so these three things, and I just call them now the three eyes. And I'm looking for people that are nine and 10 on all three things. Yeah. Because if you find someone, and I have been able to find some people that are in this category, and I'm like, they are so easy to work with because I can trust them so much. So these are like high trust individuals. Right. And when the trust is high, everything's easier. When the trust is low, everything is harder. And so that's, that's like the first thing is where I can influence it. And, and even in personal life, I mean, you're looking for people that when you're with them, same thing, integrity, intelligence, initiative. If you can, I, have I agree. As you're saying this, the trust, I, I'm actually going forth with a proposal with a vendor contractor on something now. And, and I've added some stuff and removed stuff and it's just incongruous. Like when I take it away, only 10 cents comes off. And when I add it, 90 cents goes on. And so it, <laughs> it's caused a lot of back and forth phone calls and stuff because I'm like, this just doesn't, it's it's lowered the trust, which has made me now go into all of the other numbers, like, you know, much, much more detailed. It's definitely made it much more effort. I have somebody that I work with. I've worked with them for years and years now, and they're still a contractor. That's the, the right thing. And they still bill me in 15-minute increments to my advantage. So if they're working on things and they're right. doing something for me and it takes them 15 minutes, they bill it for 15 minutes instead yeah. of... I would have no idea. They could yeah. do half an hour, an hour. Well, I would have some idea, but you couldn't prove it. So you would just start to feel a little uncomfortable when you start yeah. going. And then you ask no questions now. I think, you, you know, the, the bill comes back and you're like, I feels high to me. You know, you have a gut check of this. And so the integrity is just so important to me. It just makes it so easy. And of course, you then want to work with them more because it's so easy. And yeah. so, you know, yes, I do think that you want to sort of, to do what you can as kindly as can to not be working with high maintenance people, yeah. right? That are exhausting. Now, that's something I think if you have the power to do it, if you have the influence, that is like such an example of residual results of effortless results because one right hire is like you've made a thousand decisions, right? That, that is a, that's like a hundred results because the, every time you work with them, they're making your life easier at every single juncture or harder at every juncture. With the people that you are already working with, that you're already committed to, or you can't make a change about for whatever reason, what I would encourage people to do in that situation is to create a high trust agreement. Because in every relationship, there's, there's really three relationships. There's person A, person B, or three people. Person A, person B, and then the agreement. Yeah. It's like its own person in the relationship, but it's the one least acknowledged so if there's a problem between somebody and it starts to feel at odds, we tend to go, well, it must be them or it must be me. Right. And that both of those things are quite painful, can be uncomfortable, especially if your evaluation of that doesn't make it better. And often I've found that what the real problem is, is that the agreement is a low trust agreement. The agreement is making life harder than it needs to be. Right. Most agreements between people aren't contractual. Most of them are just sort of mishmashed together. You know, well, this boss said you had to work with this person and this person said, so, and it's just this mess of expectation. And now you're trying to work together with all of this unspoken expectations and, and roles and responsibilities. And so, so the, the high trust agreement is when I, I highly recommend uh, there's like five questions you need to get clear on. If you can get it written, that's even better. But even if you can't, you can sometimes just verbally talk through the five questions, right? The first is results. Just what are we trying to do? Like what, what is the outcome we are trying to achieve? The second, I got to try and see if I can remember these now. Uh, the, the second is roles, which is like just who's doing what. If you can get those first two things clear, oh man, you're like 50% the way yeah, to a better relationship. Third thing is rules. Like just is there any minimum standards I need to know about that work for you, that don't work for you? Is there anything that's like out of bounds? Like, let's just get some of that out to be clear. 
somebody was telling me recently that they had a boss that was like, the staple has to be this way in the, in the document. And maybe you don't want to work with that boss. I, I, I wouldn't, but maybe you don't have that choice. You just can't, you know, feel like it's the right thing to do now. So it's better to know that stuff if you can. So now yeah. you just can do it the way that matters to them. What are the rules? Uh, the, the next is resources where you can advocate for yourself, like and think through what are all the resources I would need to be successful. And finally, it's rewards. It's, res- it's accountability. When are we going to get together to review this? And what are the rewards if we do? And if you can just get some of those things out, like I say, even written down, then you know I've done it with my own children. I've done it with professional relationships. Uh, it just makes everything easier. Uh, I mean, easy, easier than it otherwise can be. All right, Greg. Well, thank you for stopping by again. The book is effortless. Uh, it's out today and uh, it's taken some effort, but I, it, it will help everyone. It seems like this is, this is sort of the logical, once you, when, when you believe in essentialism, this is how you get there without creating as much work for yourself. So uh, thank you for coming and joining us. And where, where's the best place for people to look, uh, find the book, uh, learn more about you? Yeah. I mean, I think that Right now, at the time that people will be listening to this, there's actually still an offer out, which is if you order the book, you also get a 21-day essentialism challenge. It's a masterclass. So you go to essentialism.com. That will forever be available if we want to do that course later. Or if they don't want to buy this book, they can still buy that course. But you know, it's an offer right now. Get the book and you, you can get that 21-day challenge. And, and I think that that's there. all incremental small ways you can put essentialism into practice more effortlessly. All right. Well, congrats again. Thanks for joining us. And uh, when the next book's out, we'll have you back again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Greg, uh, his book, Effortless, and the What's Essential podcast on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.